and welcome to Season 3 of the Commons Good Podcast, where we talk stewardship and starting points for learning and acting together to ensure all people and places are thriving, no exceptions. I'm your host, Stacey Wegley, and this podcast is brought to you in partnership by our teams at Community Initiatives and the Institute for People, Place, and Possibility, stewards of the Community Commons. In this episode, we're joining forces with the Build Healthy Places Network, whose work sits at the intersection of community development, finance, public health, and healthcare. They intentionally position partnerships between these sectors to leverage community-centered investments to reduce poverty, improve health, and advance racial equity. We're grateful to be talking to Barbara Masters and Deborah Otto Kent about what this looks like up close and in community. How is work evolving during this legacy moment we're experiencing? What does it look like to build a sense of belonging and civic muscle through authentic community engagement? And what are the opportunities and momentum they see in communities for moving from recovery to renewal? Let's jump in. Barbara and Deborah, I'm just delighted and eternally grateful to have this time to sit down together today to hear a little bit more about your work and what you're seeing across the communities in which you're working and look forward to talking a bit about um, some of the emerging new tools and resources um, that are available to change makers. On the podcast, we love really just to take a moment to start to hear a little bit about sort of each of the voices that have joined us for the day and would love if each of you would take just a couple of moments to share perhaps a little bit about the the places you grew up or the people that you grew up with that perhaps helped to shape uh, the work that you do today and and what's most important to you. Uh, Thank you so much, Stacey, for inviting me to join you and and Deborah today. Uh, My name is Barbara Masters and I am the director of the California Accountable Communities for Health Initiative, which we fondly call CATCHY because the other thing is too long to say on a regular basis. And and I'll get into what CATCHY is about in in a bit, I assume. Um, I've been doing that for about five years and really see that as kind of a, a culmination of my life's work. I've been in health policy in one fashion or another for my whole career, having started out actually at the federal level working in the US Senate and seeing policy at that very high meta level. Um, And then coming back to California where I grew up in Los Angeles um, and realizing that so much of what happens is really on the ground. That federal policy shapes so much, but where it, hap- where it gets implemented, where people's lives are shaped is local. Um, and I've been doing work in, all throughout the state, uh, having come back to where I grew up in LA about 20 years ago. Uh, and I'm loving doing work with 13 communities across the state uh, who are making incredible change on behalf of their communities. And that's really what inspires me. That's fantastic. Thanks so much, Deborah. Thank you for in, inviting me, Stacy, and a pleasure to be here uh, today with uh, Barbara. I love this question because it actually kind of made me think and go further back uh, about sort of what drew me to the to the work that I've been doing, um, you know, for the last I don't know forty years. 
Thank you for the question. So, you know, my grandfather was a farm labor organizer and uh, did that until the, you know, the uh, Japanese American internment relocation. And so when I started thinking about kind of my tra trajectory and, you know, how I kind of got involved in, in this work, uh, after I finished graduate school for about seven or eight years, um, I worked a lot uh, with ag agricultural workers in Northern California to do um, to work around health disparities, reducing health health inequities and, and disparities around cardiovascular disease and kind of the you know the primary causes of death. Um, and after doing that for a while, I started the Health Education Council, a private nonprofit community based organization uh, based in the Sacramento region to really address the significant health disparities that existed amongst um, low-income, underserved, very diverse communities in our region. And at that time, you know, there was, there really, I really had not set out to start a nonprofit organization. I had really looked around and there wasn't um, an organization that was really, you know, solely devoted to um, reducing health disparities through kind of broad, you know, public health um, initiatives. And um, I think, you know, after doing this for 30 years uh, in my organization, I just, people ask me like, why am I still interested <laughs> in this work? And I, I feel like, um, you know, now is sort of our time, you know, <laughs> and uh, I either feel really um, encouraged and optimistic or I feel really depressed that it's taken 30 years to really, you know, bring uh, health inequities and its multiple layers to, to the forefront. Thank you so much for that. I so appreciate how you've helped step us in a little bit to each of your experiences. And this past year, year I guess, gosh, 18 months, almost 24 um, at, at this point has been so incredibly disruptive and has been so revealing in our communities and our families and our organizations. And I'm wondering for the two of you, what's you know standing out um, about what this past year and a half and the pandemic has made more visible? Uh, well, I mean, I, I just, you know, I think the last year and a half just clearly um, laid bare uh, the, the deep but very shallow below the surface inequities that existed around um, health and education and uh, employment, you know, jobs and housing and uh, race um, and access and violent, I mean, just go, going on and on and on. And, and I think it's, you know, this is a time that, you know, all of it was just hard to ignore by almost every sector. Um, and so I, ju I just think that the, that the pandemic, while extraordinarily challenging for everyone, um, you know, has, created this opportunity to dig in in a different way, to be real with ourselves, to not be able to, you know, say this is just one segment in our population. This has impacted all of us and particularly, I think, um, has built a case for every sector around um, 
what are we going to collectively do to find solutions around inequities? I mean, I was reading this book by the former CEO of Best Buy, and you know, he 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 said, "You have a health crisis, an economic crisis, a societal crisis, a racial crisis, an environmental crisis. I would add to that a mental health crisis." He says, "You have this all-you-can-eat menu, and right now the status quo is just not an option." And this was in a call to action to the business community. And I, I see this across the board to, for so many sectors. Um, I don't think I can add much to the eloquence of what Deb just talked about. I, I do agree that this is in some ways um, a moment in time. I mean, I try to not think every moment that I live through is the most important or the most unusual or the most unprecedented and have some sense of, of history. But there's so much that has been driving towards what, what both the challenges and the opportunities of where we are right now. Um, and we shouldn't ignore the impact of um, the racial justice protests around the murder of George Floyd last year, um, which we're doing its own work to elevate racial injustice in this country. And then you have the disparate impacts of the COVID pandemic and and you really see that this is a this is a societal cross sector cross institution cross human being <laughs> kind of impact that um, we can't address through a really good program and we can't address through one you know magic solution um, that it really takes a different way of thinking a different set of priorities a different way to come together and figure out how to um, address these issues systemically. So I, um, uh, you know, and, and what's interesting when I think about my career tra trajectory, having started really in healthcare policy, which was what do we need to do to fix the healthcare system um, with the belief that if we fix the healthcare system, we are gonna fix health. And it was only over the last 20 years that I think the understanding of the role of the social determinants of health has in terms of our health. You need the healthcare delivery system, but if we want to improve health, we've got to look beyond the medical care system and the medical care model. And, um, and so you have that sort of happening over the last 20 years. And then we have the pandemic where it just is said laid bare um, what, where these inequities come from, that it's not just the disparate impact, access to the healthcare system, which exist and which are significant and which we have to contend with, but it's also income inequality, um, education inequality, uh, justice inequality, all of those things is why we have the health outcomes we do where a zip code, you know, four blocks away can determine your longevity or your health status. And I think there's now this actually uh, consensus around that. I mean, when you start hearing people in the healthcare delivery system, at least giving lip service. I wouldn't say they've come all the way to where they need to be, but at least they understand they have to pay attention to what happens outside of the four walls. Um, and at least they understand that there are racial inequities that really need to be at the foundation of how we think about our systems. That's, 
that's where I'll get progress, where I get some optimism. Uh, now we have to develop the will to actually solve those problems. Yeah, Barbara, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, you, I, I never thought that there would be this day where the social determinants of health would become so part of our common vernacular. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was meeting with a commercial real estate broker and he asked me, he said, so tell me about what the Health Education Council does. And I began to describe our work and he said, oh, okay, I get it. You work on the social determinants of Whoa. health. <laughs> like, who? <laughs> oh I mean, I mean, honestly, three, four years ago, who, who would have yep. right, thought that, that this would become part of the common vernacular? And we're, you know, talking about the underlying drivers of health and we're defining health so broadly around economic well-being and and safety and sort of all these other measures, I think that um, have become uh, so clear. I mean, and the other thing is, you know, I, I serve on probably three or four, you know, either race equity and inclusion or diversity, equity, or inclusion, all this whole new set of acronyms, mm -hmm. either DEI, REI, you know, committees that are being formed by entities that I would have never expected that in the past transportation organizations who really are trying to look at their system, right? How they do business, how they approach, how they define inequities. And what does that mean in terms of how they do business? Air quality resources, I mean, just entity, I think local governments are digging in in a, in a different way and it's going deeper than just mm -hmm. declaring racism as a public health problem or calling out racism. So I, th I think we have, this is a real different time now. And I'm just hoping we kind of have the courage to dig in in a different way and <laughs> to hold, you know, ourselves and each other accountable for, for what is the change we're looking for and to recognize that change is incremental, um, but not doing the same stuff. You know, they, we're talking about it differently now, I think. Yeah, you've both named sort of that menu and really that sort of overwhelm, right? It's like the pieces individually are so enormous and together are almost, you know, debilitating in the sense of, you know, in some moments where, you know, to begin and can we make progress? And yet, as both of you have pointed to, you know, there's also so much resilience in community, you know, uh, locally is often leading the way for sort of what is possible and wondering if each of you uh, might share a little bit about, you know, what you're seeing sort of where are folks willing um, and showing up, you know, being a bit, you know, bold, um, trying something that might really, you know, be a bit of a trend bender um, for the next generation? Hmm. Well, um, why don't I just start with talking a little bit about Catchy, because I think that's what we, <clears throat> we um, are seeing actually through many of the ACHs, and that is the intent of, of Catchy. Um, so it started about uh, five years ago um, with, uh, it actually grew out of a state initiative called the Let's Get Healthy California Task Force that was established by then Governor Brown. Um, and then uh, the idea for um, an accountable community of health was just percolating out in across the country, um, which I think people gravitated towards here in California. And then, um, 
a number of the private foundations in California came together and said, we're really intrigued by this idea. Let's fund collectively to, to um, establish this. And so first I wanna give some kudos to the foundations for saying, we'll just do this as a, a group, as a collective, um, because that is the idea of an ACH, which is a, it is essentially kind of a collective impact approach. Um, it's about multi-sector collaboratives. It's recognizing that the way to get change in a community is through multi-sector partnerships, because as we've just been talking, the social determinants of health matter. Um, and if we're going to improve health, we need all these partners at the table. No single entity, no single system, no single organization is going to get to population health, is going to you know, improve it all by themselves. It's not about one program. It's not about one intervention, no matter how good, is <laughs> not gonna get us to the change that we need. We need this kind of systemic change. So there are, you know, these ACHs um, of which there are 13 in California that we've been supporting. And, you know, they're all different because they all reflect their local circumstances. They reflect the local partners at the table. They reflect um, who is in the best position to shepherd an ACH, to backbone it as, as Deb does in West Sacramento and in other places, they are public health departments or other types of nonprofits. Um, it's, a, it's about how they engage their local residents because having that resident voice meaningfully at the table is really critical to begin to change some of these power dynamics that we've been talking about. Um, and it also recognizes that, as I said, you're not gonna get to change through one program. So we need to think about how to improve cardiovascular health or how to improve community violence or how to improve um, um, uh, substance use through a whole range of strategies that hopefully are working in some coordinated and aligned fashion, whether it's in the clinical setting, in the community setting, connecting between those, or how it's supported through policy. You need all of that working in concert. And the ACH table is the vehicle to do that. It's a vehicle for achieving systems change to get to the kinds of outcomes and, and reductions in, in disparities that we all are striving for. Yeah, appreciate you helping us yeah, understand that work and just sort of double clicking on, you know, that, that one, the multi-sector, right? That it takes all of us. We all have a role to play from our seat and that that work uh, can and should reflect um, each of the communities. While there may be some through threads for shared principles or you know, other conditions that help you know, the work move forward and um, you know, build together um, that really that each of those pieces um, will be reflective of the tapestry of that um, community. Deborah, sort of your thoughts. So um, I think Barbie, you mentioned, you know, uh, resident engagement as, as being, you know, an essential element, right, of any change strategy. And um, Stacy, I think you can kick off this discussion talking about resilience. And, um, you know, there's, there's some words that kind of jump out at me about resilience and connection, asset base, and, and, and for me, you know, the other thing that 
the pandemic really disrupted in a huge way was connection. And, you know, I always, this is kind of always in my thinking that, you know, our former Surgeon General declared uh, a public health um, epidemic of loneliness prior to the pandemic. And then we go into the pandemic and I look at loneliness really as, uh, you know, a function of connection and our connection with each other and our connection with our neighborhoods and our connection with our families and, uh, you know, all of that really being disrupted. And, you know, the same kind of with systems, like what we really are seeking is better connection and linkages and in service, right, of better serving folks who live in neighborhoods and communities who who, bet, who most need or need to access those services. So for me, I've been thinking a lot about this, you know, this concept of connection and how we activate that and, um, you know, honor that as a real function to finding solutions. Um, and so, you know, this whole resident in, engagement piece, I think um, we are really trying to take more of an asset-based approach rather than a need-based approach where I think, you know, residents are tired of always focusing on what's bad and what's needed. And, um, but, um, you know, this approach of what's good in your community, how do we leverage what's good? How do we bring in resources that, that neighborhoods have been historically excluded from receiving? Um, you know, I just, I just think that's really tapping into the existing resilience that neighborhoods have always had really to uh, continue to survive through, uh, you know, these decades and decades living with all these inequitable distribution of resources um, and environment, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm seeing that with, with our multi-sector partners, this real renewed interest and commitment to authentic resident engagement. And this continuum, it's not just about public engagement or resident engagement. It is about moving the continuum forward to empowerment mm -hmm. and really listening to voice and receiving that voice and putting the responsibility on us as the sector leads, if you will, to listen different, to receive different, to engage and to invite and embrace differently than we have in the past. To me, that's a real opportunity. And I'm also seeing that some of our sector partners realize they don't really have the skill set to do it, that there are systemic barriers, right? When you are, you know, a local government or a law enforcement entity or even a healthcare provider about how people come around the table and share. I think one thing that has become so clear and, and, um, and the pandemic has only heightened is the relationship, relational aspect of this work, which at its foundation is about trust mm -hmm. and trust between residents and institutions and systems, which, you know, is not always very high um, and trust between partners and institutions and sectors, because we've worked for so long in silos, worried about our own um, showing our own uh, importance um, in, in a community. And, and so there's a lot of barriers. There's history, there's, you know, sometimes 
organizations down the street from each other don't even know each other or what they do, even though they are working on similar issues. So what, what was so interesting is at the beginning of this initiative, um, where we went with communities and backbone leads that had a lot of history and collaboration in multi-sector plus. So these were strong collaboratives to start with. And without exception, every one of them after the first year, year and a half said, yeah, we've spent the last year and a half building trust, building relationships, because without that, you can't do this multi-sector work. Um, and even where there was a lot of history and experience and relationship, that still was really, really important to attend to. And again, it's at all levels between organizations and between people and with residents. There's just, if you, if you can really build that foundation of trust, you can do a lot. And I think where that really came home for me is during the pandemic, where there had, we, which hit two or three years into the initiative. So there'd been this foundation of collaboration that had been built around the ACH table. And when the pandemic hit, the ACH was able to bring folks together and say, whoa, we have this crisis in our community. How can we all work together to coordinate our resources, to collaborate together, to put aside our individual agency issues and respond to the needs of our community? And amazing things happened. And I know Deb has a lot of stories to tell about what happened in West Sac. And it's true in Long Beach and it's true in East San Jose. There were incredible collaborative efforts but they don't just appear out of thin air. You know, They are built on a history of working together. And sometimes we don't give enough credit to all that work that went into building those relationships in the first place. You know, and I used to, I mean, I, and maybe we're still emerging from this that we've always done about trust and relationship building. You know, I used to work with this African-American pastor and he used to tell me 20 years ago, Debbie's all about trust history relationship, right? We build a history of doing things mm -hmm. together, right? That builds a relationship, which in turn builds trust. And for a long time, I feel like, you know, some funders of this work, certainly those in other sectors have looked at that as a real squishy outcome. Mm -hmm. Like, is that really an impact? And yet I'm seeing that change now, right? I, I'm seeing a greater acceptance about um, that is a real essential metric, right, to, to deepen engagement, to come up with different kinds of solutions that individually sectors or folks wouldn't have come up with, right? And the squishiness of some of these softer metrics, if you will, are, are becoming uh, more, you know, accepted. Um, you know, I recently met with the mayor and city manager of one of our local cities, and we actually were talking about catchy and, you know, some of our kind of multi-sector collaborative initiatives. And during that meeting, they shared that the city council has prioritized resident engagement. Wow. And, and they're in the process of working to define what does effective community outreach look like? What does that mean for residents in the city? And how do we measure that? To me, that was like, such an exciting conversation, right? Because when we talk about community engagement and, you know, as, as the policies you know, scan calls out, building civic muscle, right? 
we we're just hearing our partners talk about it in a very different way. Mm-hmm. And I mean, related to the pandemic, I mean, our healthcare partners are really saying, you know, the folks that we were really hoping we could connect and reach out to for um, to increase uh, vaccination equity. We don't know how to reach them. Mm-hmm. We don't know, even though they may be enrolled in our health plan, we don't know how to mm-hmm. make that connection. And so this tells me like we're in a different time of talking about how people think about community and public engagement and building civic, civic muscle as an essential step, not an after the or something to check up, but this is an essential step to effective solution making. Just yeah. as an example of that, that exact issue, the, um, and this relates also to kind of the policy implementation part of policy work. Um, recently, the state made a, a commitment of, I don't know, several hundred million dollars in incentive payments through health plans to increase vaccination rates among those populations that have been have low vaccination rates. Um, that's, I think, what Deb was referring to. And uh, one of our ACHs in San Diego said, so there's all these health plans, as she said, they don't know where to go. So they're calling cold all these small CBOs that serve different populations, whether it's the African immigrant community or the um, Latino community, they're just calling them saying, help us, help us, help us. And these small communities these small CBOs are being overwhelmed by all of a sudden getting the attention from the health plans. So the ACH, which has these relationships with the health plans and with the CBO said, you know what, we can bring everybody together and let's have a common conversation and figure out a strategy here. They called a meeting, everybody attends because they trust the ACH, they know the ACH and they can bring folks together and there can be a strategy conversation about how the health plans can work with these CBOs, how the CBOs can get paid for the work that they do to increase vaccination rates, which we all want, um, and people can get paid for it. And you need that that entity that can bring all these different partners together that don't know each other otherwise. Mm -hmm. Um, And these one-on-one conversations, which don't really result in a systemic approach, a systems approach, an overall strategy. So it's just a small example of how the ACH, because it had these prior relationships can play this kind of um, connecting and linking role. In this, in this case, it's about policy implementation, but that same role can be played when you're talking about policy change and advocacy. So I just yeah. wanted to offer that exam- concrete example for folks of, it seems like relationships is, is, is Deb said, a, sort of a soft measure, a soft thing, and yet it's so important in these kinds of situations. Yeah. A couple of things really rising up there for me that, you know, trust and what you've both named in a couple of different ways there is, you know, the time um, that that takes and uh, having funders and the other structures, you know, provide uh, uh, space in their, you know, investments and uh, funding and such for that to happen. We were chatting with a federal partner a couple of days ago and Patience um, was one of the conditions that she named as we think about, you know, these recovery funds. 
um, for example. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, to hear you also both talk about, you know, that um, role of convening again, often, you know, is relegated um, historically to, you know, another one of those soft skills, but is essential for real, you know, collaboration to occur. And the third piece there around the engagement and uh, hearing again, the folks come around the table, the conversations these municipalities or, um, you know, anchor institutions are having about how do we do real community engagement. And that brings up for me the work of John Powell and his team and, you know, thinking about, you know, in inclusion um, and acceptance sort of at, at one end and, you know, this real sense of belonging and co-creation at the other end. And I'm wondering where, you know, each of you in your own roles might be seeing belonging and civic muscle um, together in our communities. How do we grow that? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's incremental. I mean, I, we have been kind of the backbone organization for the city of Roseville's Invest Health Initiative. And, and uh, you know, that was originally a 50 city midsize, directed at midsize cities initiative. And, and then uh, there were kind of 10 cities throughout the country who dug into Invest Health Cities part two. And so we've been partnering with the city for the last uh, five years now. And, you know, when we started that initiative, we used a lot of data. Right. We used the community hospital needs assessments. We used the California Department of Public Health data around food deserts and, you know, all kinds of um, published data. And we submitted our proposal and application to really address the obesity um, rates or higher rates of obesity, higher visits to ED for obesity related chronic conditions. Um, and so when we, we form this multi-sector team of folks who were not public health experts at all, you know, one was the mayor of the city and another did policy for the city. We, we had a resident who, who knew nothing really about health, but wanted to start a neighborhood association in the downtown core neighborhoods, um, which were the lowest income neighborhoods. Um, and somebody from Kaiser and, you know, another lifelong resident. And it was, we started this, we just all kind of consents. We need to listen to people who live in the neighborhoods, right? We need to take the data that, that got us this grant, right? Got us funded and circle back. And what we found was that we, you know, we did, I don't know, 40 key informant interviews. We, we did a lot of kind of snowball networking. Who do we need to talk to? We did kitchen table discussions uh, with Lupita and her crew and <laughs> backyard barbecues. And what we found was that obesity was not the common element, that be a food desert was not the issue they were most concerned about. Their issues were really around connection, wanting to connect more with their neighbors. It was about walkability. It was about walkability to the grocery stores, but they didn't have the, the curb on and off ramps. It was about a lot about safety and then co all, constant mentioning of the local park, right? Yeah. Around poor lighting, around safety, around treescaping, around unsavory activity going on in that park. And so we we just really pivoted as, as a team and reached out, formed an advisory committee. And as a result of that, really started looking at what are residents saying and, and how do we find some solutions to that? It's not big investments of money. And so the Roseville Electric Company said, we have a mandate to reduce greenhouse gases. 
we're going to retrofit parks and neighborhoods with LED lighting. How about if we prioritize those neighborhoods first? That happened first. Um, dramatically improved, gave residents a visual sign that they were speaking and somebody was listening. Lighting improved. The Union Pacific is uh, the railroad tracks, largest uh, rail yard west of the Mississippi is located in Roseville. UP stood up and said, I heard somebody say they wanted a neighborhood watch program. We will pay for all the signage and provide funding support to, for the neighborhood associations to start this. What happened then is the neighborhoods, neighbors started forming the neighborhood associations. So when we started, there weren't any. Now there are three active neighborhood associations. Um, the city found money to put on the curb on, on ramp, off ramps, um, so that mothers could push their strollers and carry their carts to the grocery stores. These were kind of the small incremental changes, right, that really made residents feel like um, they are bringing their assets, their voice, their solutions to a community to make their, their neighborhood better. And I think, and our team feels like if we had not invested that first six, nine months where we, some people felt like, are we doing anything other than listening? We would not be in the same place today as we are. Powerful, powerful examples. And one of just sort of the cross-cutting pieces I'm hearing there also is, you know, this idea of multi-solving, you know, the electric uh, company didn't have a connection to obesity, but the electric company had, a, you know, a, a connection to sustainability and that, you know, that opportunity to find those uh, multi-solving solutions or, you know, that, that common ground um, for which, um, can serve sort of multiple pieces, the same with the curb cuts, right? It's like, that's uh, good for moms and dads who are pushing strollers. And it's, you know, fantastic for aging in place um, for mobility. For I mean, Kaiser Permanente funded a um, outdoor learning classroom. Uh, we poured a concrete pad around this beautiful tree. Salvation Army did after school tutoring. They said we would, they they would pick up kids after school, drive them to their facility, and now they relocated those after-school programs at the park instead. I mean, this was a lot of not huge investments, um, but putting resources and listening to residents to make small incremental changes that together everybody sort of has a piece of and feels kind of proud, <laughs> you know, together with the residents. Yeah. If I could just offer one other example of this process of building civic muscle of, in, of it's not just as Deb said, we're not just saying, you know, surveying residents say, what do you want? And then we'll do the work of making it happen. It's really engaging people in the process of making change happen. And that's how power is built. And it's, that's another change I think we're seeing as a, the use of the word power that everybody sort of shied away from. And now I think we're recognizing, no, that is what this work is really about. Um, in, in East San Jose, where there is an ACH that was um, created to work on um, community violence, where they were, they've had longstanding problems. Um, and it's, it, they called themselves the Peace Partnership. And in that community, the backbone, the, our grantee is actually the public health department. But the public health department knew that it needed a community partner. Um, and so it is co-chaired 
with a local um, highly respected community organizing group that has spent years, you know, doing leadership training, resident engagement. I mean, they have worked for a long time in building up that civic muscle in the community. So you have partners, one community, one public health department leader who are co-chairing it. And that has proved to be a really effective model for the, the ACH. And it's led to um, you know, a whole range of, of issues around community violence where they did a deep dive into root cause and started seeing policy issues around displacement um, and gentrification that they are now tackling as a group. And that is, a, those are hard thorny issues. It's not just violence um, intervention prevention programs. Equally important was when the pandemic hit, you had this trusted table that was able to pivot and say, well, we're going to try to now do what we need to do to address the pandemic. And what was so exciting about what they did there, they had they actually have a wellness fund, which is a vehicle for bringing resources together to invest in the priorities of the, of the ACH. And what the community said was, there are a whole lot of people in our community that are not eligible because of immigration status for the federal payments that people were getting to sustain their lives, whether it's buy food or pay rent when people lost their jobs. You know, we all got federal payments, but folks who are uh, undocumented or other immigration status didn't. And they said, we need to raise money and we need to put that money into getting people resources to people. And they got together and they raised over $600,000 so they could support wow. 700 families who otherwise were not eligible for the federal um, uh, support. That is a remarkable achievement. And it is because of the voice of community that said, this is our priority, that wanted to help those individuals who oftentimes don't have a lot of voice in these sorts of policy decisions. And I think that's the civic muscle we're talking about is people who are now able to influence decisions of you know, policymakers and other organizations, um, funders, because of what they bring to the table. They understand the needs of their community. So, you know, that's what I think is, is going to sustain and serve that community over the long term is now a sense that, well, we can create change. You know, we can, we can come together and influence how decisions are made. But just, a, I mean, a powerful and moving example of um, relationship and um, the flex of civic muscle and really taking care of one another. Mm. You um, touched on, you know, policy and we've um, talked about relationship. We've talked about, you know, um, multi-sector. Um, we've talked about trust and some of the, you know, structures like, you know, funding and investments, et cetera, that are broadening um, the way that they deliver those investments to allow for more of this um, meaningful and impactful community work to happen. Let's talk just a minute about the role of policy. And Barbara, I'm reaching back even to some of your opening comments. You know, really, we've got the federal, we've got state, and we've got local. Um, where are you seeing um, bright spots, perhaps, or, or opportunities um, in these moments? 
at the federal, at the state, and at the local. I mean, this is a, it actually is a really interesting time um, because we have a federal administration that has said we're prioritizing equity um, and we want to see how equity shows up in every single policy that we are doing, which is a remarkable statement from a federal government, from a president. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, we're seeing a federal government that has put out billions of dollars down to the local level. I mean, I think all of our cities and counties have just gotten, I, I don't know what the numbers are, tens of billions of dollars with another tranche coming next year. Um, remarkably, our state did not suffer a deficit during the pandemic, but rather a surplus and the surplus plus the state dollars meant they had money to invest in people. And we saw that in the last state budget, which invested in ways we haven't seen in years. Um, and, and we have been advocating for, it, the, for our ACHs to um, you know, go to their local cities and counties who are receiving these, these uh, COVID dollars and um, and make a, a pitch for investing in the ACH model, investing in the backbone, which I will just say as a, a parenthetical, that's the hard piece to often raise money for because it's the soft stuff that Deb spoke about that you know people wanna fund cool programs and not infrastructure, not relationship building, but I think we need to be able to articulate our case for that. Um, but, but this is, there's bright spots of investment opportunities and in policy priorities um, that I think is, is exciting um, and I think holds potential for some real transformative catalytic kinds of activities. And, uh, you know, I know Deb's talking about how, you know, she's working with her local mayors and we're seeing that um, uh, up and down the state. Yeah. Um, I. I think I, I can't agree with you more, you know, that um, we have the framework to really make investment in equity different now. And we're seeing whether or not, you know, down the chain, local governments or local entities fully agree with it. Yeah. It is part of the approach, right? That's that's in some in some ways being being framed and mandated, right, as the federal money comes down. So that there is this real opportunity. I think, um, you know, the other opportunity is also just with organizations like big systems um, and how we interact with those systems and those systems kind of, um, I mean, when you get down to just being a resident who lives in a neighbor, how is the systems that you interact with on a daily basis going to be different because they have a more robust equity framework or a more robust racial equity framework? I, I mean, this is kind of some of the work I see going on very locally is mm -hmm. so we've passed a policy, you know, our city council or whatever, you know, has passed an anti-racism policy or whatever that like, what does that really mean? What does that mean for how we do business internally, externally? And so I, I'm, you know, I'm hopeful about that. I think we have to be, we have to push in, yeah. in ways so that, you know, these policies don't become shelfware, 
you know what I mean? Like we say, okay, good. We did that. Check that off. Um, I do see, um, broadly speaking, this opportunity to really embed resident engagement in a different way, public engagement in a different way than we have in the past through all, you know, sort of departments and sectors with, if you will, like, for example, within local government. And we haven't necessarily seen that, you know, before. I mean, I, I mentioned we have a, we, you know, we have a small contract with their resources board. And why? Because they're mandated to do better, um, you know, community engagement in neighborhoods that are disproportionately impacted by poor air quality, right? And so that's a really good start. I think we need to really push, continue to push on what does it mean to do it authentically? How do we move, move beyond checking off the boxes? How do we really tie robustly resource allocation with resident engagement and ultimately building civic muscle as a key in, ingredient? I think that's such a good point um, that we often think of policy as passing a law and you know that's where the policy that's that's what we should focus our organizing and advocacy around but there's so many different aspects to policy work there's mm -hmm. policy work in the implementation of policy which is where the rubber hit, really hits the road you could pass a really good law and if it's poorly implemented um, it's it's not as valuable <laughs> as when you thought it was when you passed it. So you have to pay attention to implementation. You have to pay attention to the administration and regulatory apparatus, which guides implementation. Um, and you have to pass, pay a lot of attention to the structures of policy and policy implementation, which you've just been talking about, Deb. And we often ignore that um, to, and that may be more effective in in creating good policy over the long run, if you can create openness and structures and accountability in how policy is made. And so I think at all those levels, it really is important. And at all those levels, multi-sector collaboratives have a role to play, a really important role. Mm -hmm. um, because they can divvy up, you know, the 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 work. They can, there are some players who can and can't advocate in different ways. Um, and there are others who can pick up that role um, and certainly the voice of residents in all of that. So I think there's, we, we need to get, uh, broaden our lens of how, what we mean when we say policy work to be much more encompassing of all these different aspects of it. There, there is this continuum, right? And levels of policy work. And I, I tend to look at it as like, you know, what do we really mean by systems change, mm -hmm. right? And, and, you know, when you kind of work at a grassroots level, we're looking at the systems that, you know, folks have who are historically excluded. What is their interaction to the systems? How do we remove systemic kind of barriers or change systems? to better allocate resources, to create better access, to be more welcoming, to create a sense of belonging, right? Of historically excluded folks to those systems. And I do see that as part of the policy continuum. Yep. Absolutely. You know, as communities are drinking in the new federal dollars, 
what are some of the opportunities uh, for moving uh, beyond just uh, recovery to community renewal? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great question, Stacey, um, because I think we all tend to work in really short-term kind of mindsets. And this is an opportunity to leverage and, and use the catalyst of the recovery, but move into something bigger and more transformative. Um, and I think that's where it starts with having a vision for what that is, a vision for what you want for your community. Um, and, and I will just say again, I think that happens when you can do that in partnership with others. Um, because, you know, what may be your individual organizational vision needs to be situated within the broader vision that you can work on together with other partners and with the, the community itself. And, and so I, I, I think this is the opportune time to, for the, for multi-sector collaboratives either that are existing to, you know, uh, renew um, or to form. Um, because I, I, think, I think to me, that is the exciting thing about this moment it, to do things differently. You know, we've always, what we're seeing in a lot of places is stakeholders and constituencies coming to their city councils and county boards of supervisors with, you know, fund me, fund me. <laughs> I, I do important work and they do, um, and we need resources. And that's good, um, we need to do that. But if we're going to really change the trajectory of, of how of equity, change the trajectory of health outcomes, we have to do things differently. And we have to do things collectively and we have to do things in alignment. And, um, and I think that starts with this moment of moving from recovery to resilience, recovery to rebuilding recovery to, you know, a bigger vision for our communities. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, Barbara, as you said, like, this is, um, we've been talking about, I mean, community engagement, resident engagement, you know, for decades, we, we've been talking about cross and multi-sector collaboration, right, as key to a healthy community for many, many years now. And, and I, I think um, what I see a little bit changing now is that there is an expertise around how to do that. There is an expertise a, a, around a deeper understanding around all the things that we've been talking about, about trust building, about approach, about you know um, how you enter a community. There is I think a deeper recognition about who the messenger is. Um, because I, I think, you know, in some of our work, I, I think we see often cities, for example, think they're doing very, very robust and effective public and resident engagement. And, you know, they do town halls and they, you know, have moved virtually and every council meeting subject to the Brown Act. So there's a lot of public input, you know, and so there's still the sense like we already know how to do community engagement. And yet I see that changing now. I, I see this realization, like we need a different kind of approach. We need different voices around the table. Oh yeah, we aren't getting those voices around the table. Um, 
And I think it takes for us practitioners in the field to always be asking, holding ourselves in check. Are we talking to the right people? Are we honoring what we're saying? Are we listening in a way that isn't self-serving or it truly is, you know, is in is is seeking solutions that best meet the needs of residents. Um, you know, I think uh, in our in our the example I just gave you about the city of Roseville, like we are deeply still doing that work. I mean, there's a very large Latino Spanish speaking population in the core neighborhoods. And right before the pandemic hit, we went door to door, we invited folks, we reached out to folks directly who live in the neighborhoods who speak Spanish. And there were six Spanish-speaking residents who came to the Neighborhood Association meeting of 25 other folks who were already there. And so I asked them, I said, have you ever been to a Neighborhood Association meeting? And they said, no. And I said, why, why haven't you, you know, come to the Neighborhood Association meeting? And their answer was, because I've never been invited. We've never been invited. And so I feel like we really have to keep ourselves in check, right? That... Um, often there's a different kind of approach to making folks feel welcomed and like they belong around a table that is far beyond the traditional approaches that we've taken. Translated flyers, putting it in an electric, I mean, all, all kind of the, the traditional things. Um, so I, you know, I am, I, I do think there's um, this increased recognition about the power of cross-sector collaboration and the time it takes to understand the language and purpose and you know and how those purposes are very aligned. I can't tell you when we first started our ACH in West Sacramento, I can't tell you the number of times our partner said, I'm just trying to figure out how I fit in here because we're not a health organization. Like we, you know, we just we don't do any of health work. And so that sort of incremental understanding of actually right. you do, you are <laughs> essentially involved in health. Yes, you're from the school district, but you are essentially involved in health. You do direct parks and rec. That is essentially, right, grounded in health. All of that takes time and understanding. And, it, and honestly, I think, an expertise of how to bring people together to bring that out. I think that's a, a really important point that um, convening, that bringing people together takes skill and expertise and that it should be recognized and paid <laughs> for. Um, it's not it, in facilitating different perspectives and points of view and driving people into, into a common vision. This is hard work. It's incredibly valuable um, and long-term work, but it's hard work and it takes real skill. Um, and I, I had written myself a note of just leaving that. I think the task, one of the policy tasks before us is to get that recognized in policy and paid mm. for in policy. Um, so that Deb's not doing that with, you know, little piecing together money from a whole bunch of different grants that are designed to do different programmatic work. And she's mm -hmm. going to pull some of that dollars to do her facilitating and convening. And that is core work. And we need to 
recognize that just like it's core work for residents to be at the table and we should pay them. If we really want to do things differently, we need to put our resources behind that. And I think that's a really important policy imperative going forward. Mm -hmm. That's very well said. Uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, for a long time, we're kind of preaching to the choir about that. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I see a greater recognition of that, mm -hmm. that this sort of connection making through whatever you call a cross-sector coalition building or whatever you call it, mm -hmm. it is about connection and deepening mm -hmm. connection. Um, it is foundational, I think, to long-lasting, sustainable change. I like that. I'm going to steal that connection making. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you know, as we at Community Initiatives are blessed to be able to work with, walk with, learn from um, communities around the country, you know, I those who are just, you know, leaning in and doing rich work, there's not a single one of their theory of change, you know, or to say that to sort of the, the other direction, every one of their theories of change include convening, engagement, um, and, you know, uh, measurement um, in some, you know, in some form. Uh, there, you know, are sprinkles and textures, again, that, um, that shine um, and are additive for a variety of communities. But yeah, they're simply not a community um, out there doing good work that isn't including, um, you know, each of those pieces that you all have um, named and helped unpack here so eloquently. Can yeah. I just say too, I, I mentioned this to Barbara the other day, I'm excited about um, this work going on by the National Academy of Medicine to really define metrics around community engagement. And um, the kind of this steering committee that they set was originally, you know, 10 researchers who really kind of looked at the scientific literature. And then, you know, in their wisdom, they brought around 10 very grassroots community folks and did the hard work of noodling through, like, how do we really define robust community engagement? And then how do we measure it? Like, what are the indicators of how to measure it? And so this whole process they've been to through a reviewing, you know, 1500 scientific journal articles, and then, but meshing that with what community folks are saying, and then doing this crosswalk between what is the indicator and how do you measure that based on the scientific literature. I'm really excited about that because it's going to, in some respects, legitimize things we're talking about trust, relationships, you know, <laughs> building those things as incremental foundational steps to sustain change. Um, so I'm really, there's a kind of a model out now and it's being sort of populated, I think will be released um, early next year. But so it's just the fact that, you know, when I think about the National Academy of Medicine, I think really more of a traditional science, you know, kind of organization, but, for them to really jump into this in earnest, I'm just, I, I could see, you know, throughout this continuum, folks are taking community engagement, I think, with a high degree of seriousness. <laughs> a, a recent tool that really has brought us together in this conversation, and that's through our colleagues at um, Build Healthy Places Network and their recent policy scan. And, you know, I think about 
the power of that scan and just my gratitude for folks who are, you know, doing that work of, you know, learning across the movement and bringing that together um, for, you know, uh, you know, a variety of uh, change makers and wondering from each of your perspective for the policy scan, what, you know, what did you see there? What do you see as the opportunities um, to inform, you know, local folks work or perhaps just, a, you know, a story or a community example that stood out to you within that uh, new tool? Well, I mean, you know, for me, I think this civic belonging, you know, civic engagement, community engagements and civic belonging really resonated with me. I, I was really, you know, pleased that they, that was very front and central in, uh, in the whole policy making process. And I mean, this is kind of how I've been personally using it to really deepen, you know, our thinking, our understanding, our execution, training, you know, my staff really about where civic engagement and belonging, right, this concept of connection and belonging really fits into this continuum. And how is our work boots on the ground contributing to that? So it's, um, for me, what really resonated um, out of the toolkit. Because I, I do think that policy is this continuum. And until we include folks that are most impacted by policy decisions in just to the, the process of somehow, right? That's what leads to sustainable change. Yeah, I, I agree with Deb about lifting up um, civic muscle, which again, we don't, we haven't really talked about that much in the past about power building and and engagement, and I was really excited to see that named and um, and uh, highlighted. I also think that it did. It, it was not a specific example, but getting at this idea of where health policy lives—that you know, there is that old mentality that health policy lives in the healthcare sector—and I think the conversation that that Deb was having with a school district or a um, transportation entity is like, well, I don't do health, but yeah, you do do health. And I think having this menu across all these different sectors and systems that all is health policy is, is a very useful tool for communities and multi-sector collaboratives that are trying to bring people together to, to, to influence policy, to help people see themselves in in policy that can influence health. Um, mm -hmm. I, I've done some past work with policymakers in who, you know, don't necessarily serve in on health, quote unquote, health committees or healthcare systems. And they think, well, I don't, I can't do anything about health. It's like, yeah, you can, if you're working on transportation or you're working on parks or you're working on food insecurity or you're working on any of these issues, you are mm -hmm. working on health policy and we want you to be a part of, of um, our work around that. It's, it's, it's eye-opening for them, I think. And I, I think this is a useful tool for that process. Yeah, really appreciating that. And again, really appreciating the work that um, Build Healthy Places Network and their partners did to bring this together and to organize it in the way that really the two of you have, um, you know, pointed to is, 
you know, they mapped those policies to the vital conditions, the vital conditions we all need to thrive every day, whether it be the transportation or humane housing yeah. or meaningful work and wealth and this idea of belonging in civic muscle. And it's such a tremendous way and such an easy way for, again, everyone to be able to see, you know, their role and their opportunity. And just really also appreciated um, their, the, the work that they did to harvest and lift up some of the community examples. Because once we you know, uh, see the policy, it's almost immediately the next question is, you know, where has this been done? Or what has somebody else you know, learned? Um, how can I avoid what didn't go well you know, uh, there or bring that to life in my place? And I just really appreciated that, um, both the way that they organized that and the way they brought that to life. I've so appreciated the, you know, little over uh, an hour that we've gotten to spend together today. And I know the good work awaits. So I'd love just to take a, you know, few minutes as we wrap up um, together today to offer a little bit of a, you know, an open canvas. If there are other things, um, perhaps either one of you or both of you would like to add that um, is feeling like it needs to be said and hasn't had an opportunity yet today. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I want to thank you, Stacy, too. I, I, I've been joking a little bit that I think uh, the pandemic, you know, one of the things that folks in, uh, you know, community change and public health and like we've spent, a, that sector has spent a lot of time making toolkits and um, <laughs> publishing things. And so for me, you know, I'm always about how are we going to get it out there and dissemination and, you know, what are we really hoping to achieve? So thank you really for you know, digging into this publication and providing this this opportunity. Um, I guess, you know, I tell, I mentioned in the beginning, you know, I started the Health Education Council 30 years. So, you know, like I'm in the last sort of, what is it, third or quarter or eighth of my kind of, you know, career trajectory. I'm, I just want to say I'm very optimistic and I, I, um, I'm really excited to, we have a very multi-generational workforce now, you know, um, and I'm excited by the energy and the passion and sort of the collective experience and wisdom that the 20-somethings and the 30-somethings, you know, these earlier generations are bringing to movement making and change making. And I think, you know, there's this, I'm very optimistic that we are really willing to be bolder and less afraid, uh, you know what I mean, about taking big risks and making mistakes and trying to, you know, sort of move the dial because I tell everyone in my office, look, I'm not going to be doing this work in 10 years. Mm -hmm. So in five years, I want all of us to look back and say, what is different now? I don't want to be talking about the same things. <laughs> I don't want to just be coming up with a new word for disparities <laughs> or inequities or hard to reach to hardly reach to underserved to historically excluded. You see what I mean? It's I don't want to just change the words. I want to like do something that's significant. So I'm optimistic. <laughs> so appreciate that. And on that final note, Barbara, what's bringing or giving you hope these days as we step out together? Um, what gives me hope is that seeing the work on the ground, I, it's, and the organizing that is being done in uh, mostly communities of color um, and by youth, um, that 
you know, we may be a little jaded and a little cynical having been through this for decades now, but, you know, God bless the young people who are coming into <laughs> it with fresh eyes and fresh energy and they truly are the future. And I think they're going to get it done. <laughs> Yeah. I share in that hope and just am so grateful again for the time we got to spend together today and um, wishing you both well. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Commons Good Podcast. Check out the show notes to learn more about belonging and civic muscle and the Healthy Neighborhood Investments Policy Scan and Strategy Map. Special thanks to the Build Healthy Places Network for connecting us with Barbara and Deborah, who are helping to make visible the progress in communities. If you haven't already, subscribe to be notified when the next episode airs. We believe people working together build better communities and invite you to share the podcast with your fellow changemakers. makers.